0: i like to call attention to a couple of uh, announcements in the bulletin on the back page, one of which is today. We have um, after church today, right afterwards, we have an inquirer's class. For those of you that want to learn how our church works, why we do the things we do, and how do we function the way we function, and all of that, uh, lunch is included, it's right afterward. And uh, this is one of the steps to becoming a member. You don't have to become a member by attending the class. You can simply come and learn. I'd like to invite you to come to that if you're interested. The second one is next Sunday we have Baptism Sunday. We have a baptism, I think, in both services. So if you uh, if God is leading you to be baptized, talk to me, talk to Mark, uh, send an email or a phone, to call the office, and let us know, and we'll get busy on that this week. All right, we are in the fifth Sunday of Lent. And um, for many Christians around the world... Um, especially Protestant Christians, Easter is just something that occurs once a year. We wanted to create a journey. So we're on the fifth Sunday, moving toward the cross, all right? Can you feel it? We're moving toward the cross. We're moving to a time when Jesus is going to be executed, crucified, and then he's going to rise again on Easter Sunday, and we get to jump up and down and celebrate what he has done. It's uh, spectacular. We've learned a lot about Jesus along the way. We're reviewing the I Am Statements there's seven of them in John. We started out with, I am the bread of life in John 6. We'll actually make reference to almost all these, at least once today in the sermon. I am the bread of life. and we, There we talked about nourishment, that the Lord is the one that sustains us. We move from there to John 8. I am the light of the world. There we talked about clarity or enlightenment, that as believers, because we have the Lord and what he has done in the Holy Spirit, we're able to make sense of the world around us including other religions and what's happening in our lives and the lives of others. In John 10, we saw, two: I am the door of the sheep and I am the good shepherd. And we have this idea of access, that we we make it into the sheep pen because of the Lord. He allows us that. And then we have the idea in the good shepherd of protection. He's the one that watches out for us. So you may remember last week we we asked the question of, um, do you hear his voice? Do you? Do you know the Lord? Do you hear his voice? Actually, the more important question is, do you want to hear his voice? That's the bigger question. The road to hearing his voice is often complex. Do you want to hear his voice? Are you willing to let the Lord do whatever it takes in your life for you to hear his voice? Are you willing to do that? Be careful before you answer yes. Monday, I was diagnosed with bladder cancer. I had the same response. It wasn't until Tuesday that I found out the details of it. Um, Talked to the doctor for quite some time. So when I came home Monday, all I knew was I had bladder cancer. And that forced me to... um, stop and ask the question that I ask all of you. How real is your faith? What does it mean? What's going to happen? Are you willing to trust the Lord? The story we're going to look at today is one of the most intriguing stories in the Bible, specifically because we find the Lord allowing things to happen that we wouldn't want to allow happen, and He deliberately does that. By the way, on Tuesday, there's a risk of me telling you this, The doctor called me up and said, you have nothing to worry about. I'm 99% sure that is not an issue. And I said, well, actually, I'm most interested in the 1%. (laughs) Because of my, it's amazing how the Lord involves himself in your life, and you're not even aware that he's there doing things. Because of my last surgery, you guys have had the privilege of walking some of my medical history. This will now be my fifth surgery in six, six or seven years. Uh, because of the last surgery, I was seeing a urologist. Uh, he just happened to be a urologic oncologist, he specializes in the cancer side of things. And um, I wasn't paying any attention, he was. Because I'm seeing him for other things. And so I've been seeing him for six months, and he told me just before I left for Nepal, I have concerns. So when you come back, I want to go take a look. So Monday he took a look, and he found a cancerous tumor. And um, no such thing as probability when we serve the Lord. What's the probability of finding the, uh, finding an, an, a urologist who's also an oncologist? How would you know that? That's his specialty. So he said, we caught it at the very beginning, and you have nothing to worry about. Now, I'll admit to you, Monday night, I was, uh, couldn't sleep spent the whole night awake. And um, and then I found out halfway through the night Nancy was doing the same. And uh, we spent the night talking and crying and thinking about what this means and what are the implications of this. And um, is my faith real? And, uh, and I discovered once again, it is. I said, you know, Lord, I'm not afraid to meet you. I'm not afraid to die. That's okay. That's not the issue. The issue is, as Paul said, to die is gain, but to remain with you, to the Philippians, is much better. So I thought, you know, I have my wife. I didn't say that in the first service, and Nancy reminded me that you probably should include your wife in this. <laughs> I have my wife to live for, I have my children, my grandchildren, and I have you. And so, Lord, if it's all okay with you, let's, let's uh, make sure that's fine. But the question I wrestled with on Tuesday, when the doctor told me that, and I felt a sense of relief, was, "No, wait a minute, <laughs> where's my faith? Is my faith going to be in a doctor or do I really want it to be in the Lord? I'm grateful that he thinks it's 99%, but there's still 1% chance out there. And I decided that I'm kind of caught between two poles here because on one side I could worry about it, and on the other side I can relax because my faith is in the doctor. And I decided, no, I want my faith to be in the Lord. So my request of you is very simple. Just Pray. On Tuesday, I think it's Tuesday, April fifteenth yes, that's tax day. I go into surgery to have a tumor removed, and it's just a bad day all around, right <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding <laughs> so it's easy to remember on tax day the Lord is i mean the surgeon's going to go in and take out this tumor and um, and according to him ninety nine percent chance that I'll walk away and everything will be fine, but I would prefer to trust in the Lord. And when we work our way through this story today, maybe you'll understand a little more deeply why I feel that way. I would prefer to lay myself at his disposal to do what he wants to do. So if the Lord reminds you, pray for me. All right? And we'll journey together. Let me remind you of the background kind of of what's happening here. We're going to be in John 11. This is just after the Feast of Tabernacles. We've spent the last three weeks talking about Jesus' statement in the Feast of Tabernacles. He said, I am the light of the world, right? He said, There, I am the door of the sheep, the sheep pen, and also said, I am the good shepherd. In the middle of that, he said, uh, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. So, all the way through this series, we've been asking you questions, heavenly. Are you thirsty? Are you hungry to know the Lord? Are you willing to do what it takes? Do you really want to know the Lord? That's the question. It's easy to say yes. It's very challenging to live it out because the journey for many of you to know the Lord involves uh, pain sometimes. And so we just finished the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus left the area because of the violence that was involved with him and went to a place of safety at the end of chapter 10. Verse 39, again, they tried to seize him, But he escaped their grasp, so he went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. Here he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in him. This is a common reoccurrence with Christ. He divides. He divides. There are people that recognize what he's saying, and they turn to him and they believe, and there are people that don't. And they try to cause him harm, and they walk away. Which are you? This is a common occurrence. This story we're about to enter into, the death and resurrection of Lazarus, it's a story about life, but it begins with sickness, darkness, and death. That's where it starts. Like I said, it's one of the most intriguing stories in the Bible about what we learn about God. Jesus is close to being rejected. This is consistent throughout the entire story of John. He's close to being rejected. So the setting, let's talk about the setting. This is his last miracle. He's down to the final, uh, the final days of his life. If public ministry is beginning to wind down. So the last miracle he does is to raise Lazarus. The last the miracle just before this was healing the blind man. They're actually connected, Okay. Because I am the light of the world, the blind man gets to see. I am the resurrection and the life, the dead man gets to live. Right? So they're both making a statement. John, Jesus learns that his friend, whom he loves, Lazarus, is sick. So let's just read this, starting in chapter 11 of John. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Martha. Verse 2, this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. I love the way John constructs the story because we know nothing about this. He hasn't told us a word about it. It's not until chapter 12 he tells us about this incident. So he just was always cast, throwing these hooks out there to bait you. It's like, wait a minute. We don't remember anybody in the story about a woman who poured perfume on the Lord. What are you talking about? So he's like, "Ah, it's coming." So he, he loves to bait you, and he does that here. So the sisters went to, sent word to Jesus, "Lord, the one whom you love that's important, the one whom you love is sick." When he heard this, Jesus said, "This sickness will not end in death. Wait a minute. He dies. What do you mean he's not going to end in death? Lazarus died, and Jesus knows he dies. Let's keep going. We'll come back to that. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so he had that emphasis on love. And John's trying to let us know this is a very personal encounter. This isn't somebody who he just met on the street. This is somebody he knows well. This is a family that he was hung out with. He knows them. He loves them. And one of them is about to die. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Listen to that. He stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. That's amazing. He deliberately let Lazarus die. But he said this sickness will not end in death. Here we have a picture, just a snapshot of how God works in many of our lives. It's true. The end of the story is that Lazarus is not dead. It will not end in death. But in the middle of the journey, there's death. Get it? In the middle of the story, there's death. It didn't end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that the Son... Uh, Son of God may be glorified through it. This is a common pattern when you go back to John 9 and he heals the blind man. Remember the opening words of the disciples? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's been born blind? Jesus said neither. He was born blind so that God may be glorified. So that's why I asked you, are you willing to let the Lord do whatever he wants to do in your life to bring about glory? It's an important question. Because the blind man was born blind, Lazarus died. That's pretty brutal in our world, isn't it? It's pretty brutal. And yet somehow this is going to bring about the glory of Jesus. This all creates a sense of mystery. How in the world is this going to happen? How is that going to happen? Are you willing to let the Lord do what he wants to do in your life? Are you willing to let that happen? So that uh, he will bring about... His own glory. You know, I was recently with a friend who, uh, like me, has been through numerous surgeries. Uh, Seven years ago, I didn't think I'd be starting a life of surgery. That wasn't ever part of my plan. And uh, yet the Lord saw fit to start me down that journey. So I've been through numerous surgeries now. And um, I have another friend who's facing another surgery as well. And he was troubled by this. And we met and had coffee and talked. He said, I don't get it. Why would the Lord do that? And I said, well, think about it from, uh, let's, let's look, let's, let's shift the perspective and ask a couple of questions. If four years ago, when he started his journey, mine was six or seven years ago, if the Lord were to come to you and have a seat and say, let's, let's talk. I want to, um, I want to glorify, I want to use you to bring glory to me so that the people around you will come. Okay. So I'm going to use your life and uh, it's going to be a hard life. We're going to have some surgeries involved and some pain and things like that. Are you up for it? What would you have said and this person said well i would have said yes and i said all right well the only difference is god already had confidence in you he didn't have to tell you right Just like he did with job he didn't tell job what was going to happen he just had confidence what did he say to satan the words i just hope i never hear about me have you considered my servant job he's the most faithful man on the planet Satan says, of course he is. You protect him. So God says, fine, he's yours. Do what you want. And what are you going to find out? You're going to find out that he is the most faithful man, and that's what happened. So I said to my friend, this was just two, three weeks ago, just before I left for Nepal, not knowing I was about to find out things, that uh, God didn't have to tell you he had enough confidence in you. He already knows your faith is real. He doesn't test your faith for his benefit. He tests your faith for your benefit. He already knows. Well, I found myself in that same situation this week. He already knows my faith. And so somehow with each of us, the Lord will take us through what he thinks or knows we will handle because he's going to use it for the benefit of those around us. That's what he's doing. It is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. It's amazing. All right. Then, starting in verse 7, he decides to go back to Judea. In verse 7, he said to the disciples, let us go back to Judea. But, Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews were there trying to stone you and you want to go back? So... Going back to Judea is a place of great risk. But the motivation for Jesus to go to Bethany through Judea is a response uh, to God that he knew would lead him into danger. Why? For others' benefit. He did it on purpose. He was willing to do that, to go through a dangerous place knowing that it would cost him personally for the benefit of others. But we have another principle. This is what happens with us. This is what happens with us. You don't really have to ask the question, why would God allow this to happen? You already know the answer. To deepen your faith and to draw people around you deeper into the faith as well. It's a consistent message all the way through. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he he brings up this light and darkness imagery in verse 9. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Now, remember, he's answering their question, why do you want to go back there where they tried to stone you? Why do you want to do that? This is his answer. Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Those who walk in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when people walk at night that they stumble, for they have no light. Now, Jesus has been very consistent with the whole imagery of light and darkness, teaching that when you turn to the Son of Man, when you turn to Jesus, you begin to see the light, right? Um, I am the light of the world, when you turn to Jesus, you begin to make sense of things. So the question that's being raised here is will the disciples finally see this and understand what's happening? And this is a small picture of the journey that each of us go through, isn't it? Don't we spend most of our life scratching our heads? Going, what was that all about? I mean, my response was, cancer, God, Really? <laughs> What's that all about? And so this becomes a picture of what, of us. And so the question is, will the disciples finally see? Because you know what? Jesus has taught a lot about life, but they don't quite get it because in verse 8, they call him rabbi. We know Judas never got it. Thomas didn't get it till after Jesus rose from the dead. He said, I'm not going to believe till I see. They're, these are humans. This is us. This is describing us. Some of the people we know may never believe like Judas. Others will be like Thomas. I need to see the Lord more in order to believe. So Jesus said to him, you believe because you see? Blessed are those who believe and they don't see. And so everybody is on a journey to try to make sense of this. How will we come out of this darkness? So the disciples reveal that they do not yet know his true identity and purpose. They don't understand that Lazarus has died in verse 12. Verse 11, after he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, well, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. (laughs) I love it. It's really like us. If he's asleep, he'll get better. Jesus is probably scratching his head. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought that he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. But he just said it wouldn't end in death, but Lazarus is dead. And for your sake. There it is. For your sake, I am glad I was not there. I wonder how Lazarus felt about being used that way. Jesus says to the disciples, for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there to heal him. Why? So that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, there's Thomas, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So they have this idea already forming that they're going to die, okay? So the disciples reveal, reveal that they don't really understand what's going on. They're, they're trying to make sense from our perspective of the of God revealing himself through his son in very unusual and crazy ways. And they don't get it. They're confused. So this becomes the story of, of Jesus bringing the disciples along with him. The story isn't about Lazarus. It's really not. The story is about all the people that are on this journey, and Lazarus becomes a prop, if you will. Lazarus becomes a tool of the Lord. Lazarus becomes an example that makes people ask the question, wow, do I really believe in this Lord? He's doing crazy things right here. He deliberately let his best friend die. Wow. Wow. Does that sound like the Lord that we know? Well, not by itself until you put it in the bigger context that he cares about the people around us. And so what we have here is we have an, we have this gold nugget. What happens to us is for the benefit of the people around us. If God were to say to each of you, I'm going to take you through a very difficult time so that your family will turn to me in faith, would you say yes? your friends, your loved ones? I think most of us would. The difference is God doesn't need to ask you. He already has confidence in you. So he is going to use you. So why did Jesus go to Bethany? Verse 11. I'm going there to wake him up so that some would believe in verse 14. So we now know that the raising of Lazarus is not for Lazarus' sake. Otherwise, Jesus would just have healed him. So when you ask the question, God, would you do this for me? And God says, no. You don't have to ask the question, why? We already have the principles laid out for us. Why would he choose not to heal you or me? I mean, I'll be honest with you. I'm relieved that it's a 99% chance. But there's always the one. So why would God maybe choose not to do that? Or to do it? To deepen my faith and to help all of you help all of you well then starting in verse 17 enter Martha Martha comes into the picture Jesus is now very near to where he will die on this on his arrival verse 17 Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem okay so he's very close to where he's about to die in just a few days Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days this is suggesting advanced decomposition all right The story of Martha and Mary demonstrates two women who respond in very different ways. If we back up a couple chapters, we have the lame man and the blind man. We have two men that respond in two very different ways. Now we have two women. And as we asked the question back then, we're going to ask it now, which which of these women represents you? You have a choice to make. You do. You don't have a choice of how the Lord is going to interact with you in your life. But you do have a choice of how you're going to respond to it. That is your choice. So Martha still sees Jesus as the Messiah. But she understands him in the way Jewish leaders thought of him. He's a miracle worker. Look at the language here. When Martha heard, verse 20, that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, uh, God will give you whatever you ask. That's faith isn't it? That's kind of the way we think, isn't it? He's a simple miracle worker. She doesn't quite get this idea of what it means for him to be the Messiah. So Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, Our brother had just died. So think about what this means. Do you actually truly believe that if you follow the Lord, you will not die? You may die, but ultimately you will not. In fact, I'm pretty sure that you all will die if the Lord doesn't come back. Do you really believe that if you follow the Lord, you may go through some pretty brutal times? But in the end, as Paul says, these are momentary light afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory. Do you really believe that life can be hard and challenging and painful and hurtful and that still demonstrates God's love and grace because he's interested in the people around you and he's willing to use you as an example, but in the end analysis, it's going to be okay? Do you really believe that? The only way to know is have your faith tested. Those of you that have found out you had cancer, your faith got tested. I now know that. And you know what I discovered once again? My faith is real. I'm not afraid to meet you, Lord. I'm okay with that. So he is simply a miracle worker. Life is something future, she tells Jesus. Verse 24. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection to the last day, at the last day. So she's explaining theology to the Lord. I love it. I just love it. What courage. I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So she represents in the last chapter, remember we said this last week, the Jews, they knew, they were confident in their assessment that Jesus was demon-possessed and a sinner. Remember that? And so Jesus' conclusions were that if you uh, had been blind, you would be free. But because you see, Because you think you know, you remain in your sin. She represents that group of Jewish leadership. She knows exactly what's going on. So she's explaining it to the Lord. She's telling him, him, about what's going to happen. She knows. And Jesus can't change your mind. So Jesus responds, I am the resurrection and the life. Your brother's dead. I am the resurrection and life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. There it is. The end of the story for each of us, if we believe in the Lord, is not death. It's not death. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who was to come into the world. She doesn't get it. She just doesn't get it. She doesn't comprehend that the Messiah came to bring a sense of life right now. And life is not defined as ease of pain, avoidance of pain. Life is defined as being regenerated, as knowing the truth. Life is defined as rising above a broken world, a fallen world, so that if, and I hope none of you do, you get a diagnosis of cancer or whatever, you can rise above it and say, I know the truth. And it's not what the world thinks. None of the characters thus far have shown any faith in Jesus. Now enter Mary. And her response is a little different in verse 28. After she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and asking for you. So Mary's response is going to be different. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. So he's outside the village. When the Jews had been with Mary in the house comforting her, they noticed how quickly she got up and went out. So they went with her, supposing that she was going to go to the tomb to mourn Lazarus. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was, she saw him and she fell at his feet. And she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same words, but a different response. You see it? What did the blind man say when Jesus came to him after the after the miracle? Do you believe in the Son of Man? He said, Who is he, Lord? That I could believe in. And he said, He said, It's me. And he worshipped him. He didn't try to make sense of it. He didn't try to cast it in language. I got it all figured out. That's what the Jews did. All the way through the dialogue with the Jews and the blind man, they kept saying, We know this man is a sinner. And he goes, how do you know that? He just healed me. Does God work through sinners? And they kicked him out of the temple. And so you have the Jews and you have the blind man. One were certain of their knowledge and weren't teachable. And the other one was, had no idea what to think, but was very open and teachable. That's what we have here. Lord, if you had been there, my brother wouldn't have died. She fell at his feet. She worshiped him. This reminds us of the blind man. She has the potential to be the first person in the story to understand what it really means for him to be the Messiah rather than a miracle worker. Jesus did not want to be known as a miracle worker, he wanted to be known as God. And God makes decisions and is in control. And God may choose that you might go through something hard, He may put you up against the limit, the threshold of your ability to live by faith because he has confidence in you and because he will use that in the lives around him. So we now know that what's about to happen with Lazarus has nothing to do with Lazarus. It's to bring the disciples to true faith. It's to bring Mary and Martha to true faith. Jesus' response, well known, verse 33, Um when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord. They replied, and Jesus wept. When the Jews said, "See," then the Jews said, "See how he loved him." But some of them said, "Could not he have opened the eyes of the blind man? Have kept this man from dying?" Once again, you got knowledge. What are you going to do with it? There are auto, some of the people are automatically challenging. Okay, not willing to live by faith. This word, deeply moved, it, it tends to make us think that he has this deep affection for them because they're crying and because of Lazarus. It's a strong word that most of the time has the idea of deep anger and indignance. He's, he's angry over what's happening here. Why in the world would he be angry? In addition to that, the word that says Jesus wept, it's a different word that's used of the other characters who cried. Jesus is having a very different response here. He's angry over what's happening. Why would he get angry? Could it be that he's weeping because, and he's angry because there's a risk that his friends and the people around him will miss it? They'll miss the intent of all this? Because they're right on the fence. Wait, he healed a blind man. Couldn't he have saved this man? How many times do we place ourselves and judge over God when he does something we don't like? God, you could have done it different. You didn't have to do it that way. We're right on that fence. I think that's why he's demonstrating that depth. So the story of the raising of Lazarus, it's not about Lazarus. He's most interested in the belief of all those around, the disciples, Mary, Martha, the Jews, At this point, Lazarus is the only one who enjoys the benefit of the true Messiah. He really is. With the raising of Lazarus, Jesus proves he is the resurrection and the life. It does not mean we won't die. It doesn't mean we won't go through hard times. It doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean that we have moved from death to life. That's what resurrection is all about. The moment you turn to Jesus, you are now part of the new creation.